0: We'll
1: Welcome, my friends, welcome to another edition of the Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 25th day of January, 2009. I'd like to encourage my listeners, as always, to look into the website, corbettreport.com, where you'll be able to find a documentation list with links to all of the documents cited in today's episode as well as articles, videos, interviews, and other information created by the Corbett Report in the past. I'd like to also remind my listeners to keep an eye on al qaeda not where part two of the Al-Qaeda-doesn't-exist documentary should be going up this week. That is part two, O-B-L. Now, without further ado, let's get straight to today's real news. Our first real news story today comes from the Daily Mail via the Geopolitical Monitor, January 23rd, 2009. Icelandic government brought down by credit crunch. The government of Iceland today became the first to be effectively brought down by the credit crunch. After several nights of rioting over the financial crisis, Prime Minister Geir Hard surrendered to increasing pressure and called a general election for May. A poll would not normally be held until 2011. Hard also revealed that he had been diagnosed with a malignant tumor of the esophagus and would not seek re-election. I have decided not to seek re-election as leader of the Independence Party at its upcoming National Congress, he told a news conference. The global financial crisis hit Iceland, which has a population of 320,000 in October triggering a collapse in the currency and financial system under the weight of billions of dollars of foreign debts incurred by its banks. The economy is set to shrink 10% this year, and unemployment is surging. Our second news story this week comes from the International Herald-Tribune from January 22, 2009. Senate Committee approves Geithner as Treasury Chief. The Senate Finance Committee on Thursday backed President Barack Obama's nominee to head the U.S. Treasury, Timothy Geithner, overlooking his underpayment of some $34,000 in taxes and clearing the way for a full Senate confirmation vote. Geithner was confirmed Thursday by the Senate Finance Committee, where hours earlier he had been questioned less about his prescriptions for the Perilous Times than about his personal failure to pay more than $34,000 in payroll taxes earlier in the decade. The hearing was postponed last week after disclosure of the delinquent payments, dashing the Obama team's hopes of having Geithner confirmed and in-office Wednesday. Yet the Senate hearing, while uncomfortable for the nominee, showcased the extent to which the immensity of the economic threats trumped Geithner's personal tax controversy, even for some Republicans. In better times, such tax lapses might have doomed even a candidate of his respected credentials. Geithner insisted that his non-reporting of the payroll taxes on income from the International Monetary Fund from 2001 to 2004 had been mistakes that were, in his words, careless and avoidable, but unintentional. And he apologized to the senators for putting you in the position of having to spend so much time on these issues when there is so much pressing business before the country. Our final real news story this week comes from Infowars.com, January 23rd, 2009. Rogue Trader highlights possible 9-11 and 7-7 insider trading. According to an article in the London Times today, Society General rogue trader Jerome Kerviel profited enormously on the day of the 7-7 London bombings. He has also revealed how his company made huge profits on September 11, 2001, prompting some to return to questions over insider foreknowledge of both terrorist attacks. The article states, The best trading day in the history of Society General was September 11, 2001, he said. At least, that's what one of my managers told me. It seems that profits were colossal that day. I had a similar experience during the London attacks in July 2005. A few days earlier, he had bet on a fall in the share price of Allianz, the German insurance giant, he told Le Parisien. Everyone was losing money when the 7-7 bombing sent the insurance sector into a downward spiral, except for me, he said. Thanks to the positions I had, I earned 500,000 euros in a few minutes. It was the jackpot. I was jubilant. After the celebrations, Mr. Curvial said he paused for thought. I understood that I was having fun when people had just been hit by the bombs. I ran to the toilet and I was sick. But the moment of weakness did not last long. I went back into the trading room and I returned to work. Many questions have been raised regarding massive trades that foreshadowed the events of 9-11, with put options placed in large quantities against American and United Airlines in the days immediately prior to the attacks. The investigation as to who was responsible for authorizing the transactions led directly back to former CIA director Buzzy Krongard. In the case of the London bombings, the pound fell 6% against the dollar for no apparent reason in the days before the attack. Currencies of established countries simply do not fall that fast based upon any kind of economic or financial analysis, said a 35 year veteran economist. Someone, somewhere, knew something. Or maybe I should say, some bodies. It is considered that such anomalous activity betrays prior knowledge of the incidents. Welcome, my friends. Welcome to episode 71 of the Corbett Report, Mind Control. Now, naturally, if the topic of mind control were to come up in everyday conversation, people's thoughts would immediately turn to the set of a B-grade sci-fi flick from the 50s with a mad scientist in a white lab coat surrounded by bubbling beakers and blinking lights. And most people would tend to dismiss it as a flight of the imagination, But I'm sure my listeners can appreciate that the subject of mind control is broad, its interpretation is vast, and there are many ways in which mind control can manifest itself in our society. One need only look to Madison Avenue for an example of how an understanding of human psychology can be used to in turn manipulate people into buying junk that they don't need with money that they don't have— which is exactly the situation which brought about the economic turmoil which we are in today. For a better understanding of precisely the psychological techniques that are employed to manipulate people, i.e. to control their minds in this economic free-for-all, one need only listen to a previous episode of the Corbett Report, where we talked about the father of modern advertising and mental manipulation, Edward Bernays. Now, as I've said, the subject of mind control is incredibly vast, so some of the forms and methods of mind control will have to be looked at in subsequent episodes of the Corbett Report, and it's a topic that we'll likely come back to time and again. But today I would like to focus on political manipulation, that is, mind control of the masses, to submit to authority figures. Of course, the obvious parallel to this would be what happened in 1930s Germany under the Nazis. But before we get into that particular aspect, let's take a look at some famous experiments that were conducted in the United States of America in the mid to late 20th century. The first experiment I'd like to take a look at today was one conducted by Stanley Milgram at Yale University in 1961 and 62. In 1974, some decade and a half after the experiment itself was conducted, Stanley Milgram wrote a book about the experiment and its ramifications, which he entitled Obedience to Authority. Selected chapters of that work are available online, and I'd like to read a small sample from chapter one, which describes the setup of the experiment. Quote, two people come to a psychology laboratory to take part in a study of memory and learning. One of them is designated as a teacher, and the other a learner. The experimenter explains that the study is concerned with the effects of punishment on learning. The learner is conducted into a room, seated in a chair, his arms strapped to prevent excessive movement, and an electrode attached to his wrist. He is told that he is to learn a list of word pairs. Whenever he makes an error, he will receive electric shocks of increasing intensity. The real focus of the experiment is the teacher, After watching the learner being strapped into place, he is taken into the main experimental room and seated before an impressive shock generator. Its main feature is a horizontal line of 30 switches ranging from 15 volts to 450 volts in 15-volt increments. There are also verbal designations which range from slight shock to danger, severe shock. The teacher is told that he is to administer the learning test to the man in the other room. When the learner responds correctly, the teacher moves on to the next item. When the other man gives an incorrect answer, the teacher is to give him an electric shock. He is to start at the lowest shock level, 15 volts, and to increase the level each time the man makes an error, going through 30 volts, 45 volts, and so on. The teacher is a genuinely naive subject who has come to the laboratory to participate in an experiment. The learner, or victim is an actor who actually receives no shock at all. The point of the experiment is to see how far a person will proceed in a concrete and measurable situation in which he is ordered to inflict increasing pain on a protesting victim. At what point will the subject refuse to obey the experimenter? Conflict arises when the man receiving the shock begins to indicate that he is experiencing discomfort. At 75 volts, the learner grunts. At 120 volts, he complains verbally. At 150, he demands to be released from the experiment. His protest continues as the shocks escalate, growing increasingly vehement and emotional. At 285 volts, his response can only be described as an agonized scream. Observers of the experiment agree that its gripping quality is somewhat obscured in print. For the subject, the situation is not a game. Conflict is intense and obvious. On one hand, the manifest suffering of the learner presses him to quit. On the other, the experimenter, a legitimate authority to whom the subject feels some commitment, enjoins him to continue. Each time the subject hesitates to administer shock, the experimenter orders him to continue. To extricate himself from the situation, the subject must make a clear break with authority. The aim of the investigation was to find when and how people would defy authority in the face of a clear moral imperative. There are, of course, enormous differences between carrying out the orders of a commanding officer during times of war and carrying out the orders of an experimenter. Yet the essence of certain relationships remain, for one may ask in a general way, how does a man behave when he is told by a legitimate authority to act against a third individual? If anything, we may expect the experimenter's power to be considerably less than that of the general, since he has no power to enforce his imperatives, and participation in a psychological experiment scarcely evokes the sense of urgency and dedication engendered by participation in war. End quote. Now, again, as Milgram himself notes in that passage from his work Obedience to Authority, a mere description of the experiment tends to obscure the very real psychological drama which was being played out in that experiment. So for a better understanding of what was really happening in that experiment, let's listen to an extract of audio from a video of the experiment itself with one of the actual participants taking place in administering the test. Keep in mind that although the agonized screams of the learner in this sample are in fact tape-recorded items and do not reflect real pain of the actual person involved in the experiment in any way, the person who was administering the test truly believed these to be the real agonized screams of the man he had just watched being strapped into a chair. The results of this experiment can only be described as harrowing. Let's listen to an extract of the audio from the video of one of the participants in Stanley Milgram's classic 1961-62 Yale experiment.
2: Answer, please. Wrong. Answer his neck. 300 volts. I absolutely refuse to answer anymore. Get me out of here. You can't hold me
3: here. Get me out. Me out of Continue. This. The
2: next word is green. Please. Green, grass, hat, ink, apple. I can't
4: Answer. If the learner doesn't answer in a reasonable time, about four or five seconds, consider the answer wrong, and follow the same procedures you have been doing for wrong answers. Say wrong. Tell them the number of votes. Give them the punishment. Read them the correct answer. Continue, please.
2: Uh, Green, grass, hat, ink, apple. Answer, please.
4: Go on with the procedure, please, teacher.
2: 315 volts, the answer is ink. I refuse to answer. you gotta keep getting a shock if you don't answer. And one is rich. 330 volts. Let me out of here. Let me out of here. My heart's bothering me. Let me out, I tell you. Let
3: me out of here. Let me out of here. You have no right to hold me here. Let me out. Let me out. Let me out! out. one, Fast. Let me out. Let me out.
2: Bird, car, train, plane.
4: Go on, please, with the procedures. Please
2: answer. The answer is Bird, three hundred and forty five volts. Blunt, knife, stick. Word arrow. Answer, please.
4: All right in there? I didn't hear continue, please.
2: The answer is arrow. 360 volts. Go on, please,
4: with the experiment. Please continue.
2: Soft. Rub. Pillow, hair, grass. Answer, please. Go on, teacher. Hair, 375 volts. I think something's happened to that fellow in there. I don't get no answer. He was hollering with less voltage. Can't you check in and see if he's all right, please?
4: Not once we've started. Please continue, teacher.
2: Day, shade, water, cave. Answer, please. Are you alright in there? Are you alright? Please continue, teacher. I oh, you know, I keep giving them shocks. Continue. Please. I'm up to 390. Continue, please. Something's happened to that man in there.
1: Please check the documentation link under today's episode for a link to that video. One of the startling results of that experiment is not merely the fact that many people could be made to inflict potentially lethal amounts of pain on other people simply because an authority figure told them to. It's how many people were persuaded to do so. Before he conducted his experiment, Dr. Milgram polled many of his senior year psychology major students, asking them what they predicted the outcome of this experiment would be with the average poll respondent predicting that only 1.2% of the experimental subjects would actually go through to the highest 450-volt level. But what was revealed in the actual experimentation itself was that a startling 61-65% to of all test subjects were willing to proceed through to the potentially lethal 450-volt shock level. This is not based on simply one set of experiments conducted by Dr. Milgram, but by repeated experiments conducted in various locations in various times by various people over the years. And even these days, the experiment continues to be repeated by different experimenters, although, of course, researchers now use a slightly toned-down version of the experiment to save some of the test subjects from the emotional and psychological anguish of the experiment itself by usually stepping in before they reach the 450-volt level. But nevertheless, the experiment shows that there is a startling propensity in a vast majority of the population to inflict pain on others simply because an authority figure has told them to. Now, the ramifications of that study and the way it nexuses into our current political climate should be obvious, but to further reinforce the results of that study... It would be beneficial to take a look at another famous American University experiment, this time from the 1970s, conducted at Stanford University by Philip Zimbardo. Known as the Stanford Prison Study or Stanford Prison Experiment, it was conducted in 1971 in the basement of the psychology building at Stanford University. A 1992 documentary about the experiment called Quiet Rage narrated by Philip Zimbardo himself, is available on Google Video. So let's listen to Dr. Zimbardo talking about the Stanford Prison Experiment.
5: Our goal, back in 1971, was to study the behavioral and psychological consequences of becoming a prisoner or prison guard. To do this, we decided to simulate a prison environment, both physically and mentally. And then observe the effects of this institution on all those within its walls. We used the basement of the psychology building to stage our little drama, scheduled to run for two weeks. A card of small offices was converted into a functional prison environment. It was complete with three cells, there was a guards room, the warden's office, my superintendent's office, and a closet used if necessary for solitary confinement. We recruited the help of some prison experts to assist us with our prison design and construction. Foremost among them was Carlo Prescott, an ex-convict recently released from serving 17 years behind bars in San Quentin and Soledad prisons. We placed an ad in the city newspaper asking for participants for an experiment studying the psychological effects of prison life. They would be paid $15 a day. Over 70 people applied. They were given diagnostic interviews and psychological tests to weed out all those with any signs of psychological abnormality medical disabilities or history of crime or drug use 24 were selected they were all healthy normal intelligent middle class males from colleges throughout the united states and with a flip of the coin each was randomly assigned to play the role of prisoner or guard it was only by chance that someone was chosen as prisoner or guard Now it is important to remember that at the start of this experiment, there were no psychological differences between those students assigned the prisoner role and those assigned to be guards. An undergraduate student, David Jaffe, took on the role of prison warden. I acted as the prison superintendent, while psychology graduate students Craig Haney and Kurt Banks handled a variety of prison staff responsibilities. I met with the students selected to be guards on the day before the experiment was to begin. I had to explain to the guards that they could not in any way hit the prisoners, but they could create in the prisoners feelings of boredom, boredom a, sense can of can create create a sense of
6: frustration. It can create <laughs> a sense of fear in them to some degree. We can create the notion of arbitrariness that their life is totally controlled by us, by the system you me, uh, Jaffee, um, and they'll have no privacy at all. Their cells. Uh, sleeping in rooms with bars on them, that there'll be constant surveillance. Nothing they do will go unobserved. They have no freedom of action. They can do nothing or say, say nothing that we don't permit. But are going to take away their individuality in various ways. In general, what all this leads to is a sense of powerlessness. That is, we have total power in the situation, and they have none. So what's going to happen tomorrow is, we tell the s- students to wait in their houses or rooms or other living squad car is going to pull up. <laughs> Somebody, two policemen are going to come out and ask the guy his name and visit him that he's been suspected of a crime. I don't know. they will just leave it vague. they will say drugs or something. <laughs> come with us. Handcuff him. Put him in the car. Take him down to the police station. Take him to the security underground entrance. Detain him. Fingerprint him. Book him. Blindfold him. And then, hurry and are going to pick him up because uh, they'll be blindfolded and say, oh, I'm moving out and then bring them down here and take the blindfolds off and they'll be in the prison. Then we are going to take their clothes off, uh, uh, delouse them uh, with a powder spray, uh, put on a uniform. We have some people making uniforms on today which are just going to be like long smocks with numbers on. And they'll have rubber, you know, rubber shower shoes and that's all. No on the clothes or anything. And they're going to wear a chain on one leg. Which is just a symbolic thing of their loss of freedom. So if the police have agreed to do this, I just have to go down and double check and give them the uh, names and so forth. This done by campus security where or, or by real the real people.
5: I was watching all this on the television monitor in my office with one of my graduate students. I was amazed that the guard would keep that boy in solitary all night as punishment for not eating cold, dirty sausages. I was amazed that the prisoners would keep their blankets instead of letting 416 out of the hole. This was a true prison where frustrated guards acted sadistically against prisoners like 416 who would not submit to their control and where demoralized prisoners acted selfishly and shamefully. I told her that I was really impressed with what we had accomplished in less than a week She looked at me and said, I think what you are doing to those boys is horrible. And she was right. I had to end the experiment because that's what it was, an experiment, not a prison. These were real boys who were really suffering. And that fact had escaped me. I and everyone else around me, except for that graduate student, had gotten so far into their prison roles, prisoner, guard, superintendent, whatever, that it was hard to separate reality from the simulation. It just didn't occur to me until she spoke out that I, as a psychologist, as a human being, had to do something about that suffering. I had to end the experiment.
1: Whereas the Stanley Milgram experiment from the early 1960s demonstrated that people would willingly inflict pain on others simply because an authority figure told them to, the Stanford Prison Experiment revealed that people very easily adapt to whatever circumstances they are thrust into and will take on and begin to fully internalize whatever roles they are given, even if they are consciously aware that the roles are merely make-believe. And much like the Stanley Milgram Experiment, one of the disturbing conclusions of the Stanford Prison Experiment was that one-third of the prison guards were judged to have exhibited genuine sadistic tendencies during the experiment, which of course led to its early termination. Now, as I said earlier, it's obvious how this connects us into our current political climate, and one of the obvious ramifications of that is the group torture psychology that arose in places like Abu Ghraib, Now, this subject is something that Philip Zimbardo himself has spoken about and lectured on and even written books about. So I'll put a link in the documentation section to further work on this subject by Philip Zimbardo, and I highly suggest that my listeners take a look at that. But another aspect of this type of mind control, obedience to authority, and the ability of normal people to take on sadistic roles in society is reflected in a disturbing new political trend.
0: We're gonna spread happiness. We're gonna spread freedom. Obama's gonna change it. Obama's gonna lead them. We're gonna change it. Change the world
1: It would be easy to dismiss something like that as the type of sensationalistic rhetoric that gets passed around in a modern political PR campaign. But the fact that it's centered around children praising a political leader as some type of messiah figure is disturbing in and of itself, let alone the brainwashing and indoctrination of young children which inevitably took place in the lead-up to the creation of that video. But when it reaches the levels found at a Kansas City middle school in which a drill regiment of Obama youth, sing that Obama is the Alpha and Omega, one begins to think there is something much more disturbing at play.
0: Alpha. Omega. Alpha. Omega. Alpha. Omega. Alpha. Omega. Alpha. Because of Obama,
4: I'm inspired to be the next
0: doctor. Because of Obama, I am inspired to be the next lawyer. Because of Obama, I am inspired to be the
3: next out-of-mode technician. Because of Obama, I am inspired to be the next chef. Because of Obama, I am inspired to be the next architect. Because of Obama, I am inspired to be the next engineer. Because of Obama, I am inspired to be the next farmer. Because of Obama, I am inspired to be the next architect. Because of Obama, I'm inspired to be the next chemical engineer. Because of Obama, I'm inspired to be the next entrepreneur. Yes, we can. 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 Yes, we
7: can. We abrasive abrasive
3: earth. Earth. Yes, we can. Obama speaks your race and birth. Yes, we can. Embrace births
7: of our to of our past. Yes, we can.
0: Take more responsibility for our whole lives. Yes, we yes, can. Have our own dreams and do not commit to your dreams. Yes, we can. Teach others that all they may face challenges, discrimination, in their lives. they must never succumb to despair. Yes, we can. Always believe that we might our own destiny. Yes, we can. Demand more from our fathers, and more time with their children by reading and and teaching them. For we have a choice in this country. We can accept things that bring division and create conflict. Or we can come together and say, not this time. But yes, we can. Clearly, this
1: Obama worship cannot be dismissed as merely a slick PR campaign for the Obama-Biden ticket. What's going on here is clearly something on an altogether different level. And to get a grasp of what's really happening, let's take a look at a different experiment, also from the United States in the 1970s. This time an informal non-scientific experiment conducted by Ron Jones, a history teacher at Apollo Alto Area High School. The experiment was conducted in one week in April of 1967 with Ron Jones' sophomore contemporary history class, and it's referred to as the Third Wave. Ron Jones himself wrote an account of that Third Wave experiment, which can be read online, and I read here an excerpt from it. Quote, We were studying Nazi Germany, and in the middle of a lecture I was interrupted by the question. How could the German populace claim ignorance of the slaughter of the Jewish people? How could the townspeople, railroad conductors, teachers, doctors, claim they knew nothing about concentration camps and human carnage? How can people who were neighbors and maybe even friends of the Jewish citizens say they weren't there when it happened? It was a good question. I didn't know the answer. Inasmuch as there were several months still to go in the school year and I was already at World War II, I decided to take a week and explore the question. On Monday, I introduced my sophomore history students to one of the experiences that characterized Nazi Germany. Discipline. I lectured about the beauty of discipline, how an athlete feels having worked hard and regularly to be successful at a sport, how a ballet dancer or a painter works hard to perfect a movement, the dedicated patience of a scientist in pursuit of an idea, It's discipline, that self-training, control, the power of the will, the exchange of physical hardships for superior mental and physical facilities, the ultimate triumph. To experience the power of discipline, I invited, no, I commanded the class to exercise and use a new seating posture. I described how proper sitting posture assists mandatory concentration and strengthens the will. In fact, I instructed the class in a sitting posture. This posture started with feet flat on the floor, hands placed flat across the small of the back to force a straight alignment of the spine. There, can't you breathe more easily? You're more alert. Don't you feel better? We practiced this new attention position over and over. I walked up and down the aisles of seated students pointing out small flaws, making improvements. Proper seating became the most important aspect of learning. I would dismiss the class, allowing them to leave their desks, and then call them abruptly back to an attention sitting position. In speed drills, the class learned to move from standing position to attention sitting in 15 seconds. In focus drills, I concentrated attention on the feet being parallel and flat, ankles locked, knees bent at 90-degree angles, hands flat and crossed against the back, spine straight, chin down, head forward. We did noise drills in which talking was allowed only to be shown as a detraction. Following minutes of progressive drill assignments, the class could move from standing positions outside the room to attention-sitting positions at their desk without making a sound. The maneuver took five seconds. It was strange how quickly the students took to this uniform code of behavior. I began to wonder just how far they could be pushed. Was this display of obedience a momentary game we were all playing, or was it something else? Was the desire for discipline and uniformity a natural need, a societal instinct we hide within our franchise restaurants and TV programming? End quote. Now, Mr. Jones goes on in that essay to describe how the third wave, as he comes to call it, gradually begins to take over not only his class, but the entire school, forming a type of system with members and non-members, and new members being initiated and differentiated from others by a special salute, which he also devises, and through various catchphrases of his. The experiment culminates at the end of the week with the vast majority of the school participating in the third wave experiment, becoming members of this new student movement, and looking increasingly to Mr. Jones for guidance. He convinced the students that the experiment at Palo Alto High School was in fact only one small part of what was a national movement, and that the very next day, on Friday, a presidential candidate of the movement... Was going to publicly announce the existence of the national third wave, a new political movement in the country. Mr. Jones ordered the students to attend a Friday afternoon rally in which they would celebrate the new leader's announcement.
6: There is no leader, is there?
3: Yes, there is. There's your leader. Wird more gefordert There is von than from the übrigen the For you, not the You thought you were so special, better than everyone outside this room. You traded your freedom for the luxury of feeling superior. You accepted the group's will over your own convictions, no matter who you hurt. Oh, you thought you were just going along for the ride, that you could walk away at any moment. But where were you heading? How far would you have gone? Take a look at your future.
0: Als das Gebot Ihres Herzens nicht hergerufelt als das Gebot Ihrer Freude.
3: Yes, you would have all made good Nazis. You would have put on the uniforms, turned your heads and allowed your friends and neighbors to be persecuted and destroyed? Fascism isn't something those other people did. Because right here, in all of us. You ask, how could the German people do nothing as millions of innocent human beings were murdered? How could they claim they weren't involved? What causes people to deny their own history? Well, if history repeats itself, you'll all want to deny what has happened to you in the wave. But if our experiment is successful, you will have learned that we are all responsible for our own actions. And that you must question what you do rather than blindly follow a leader. And that for the rest of your lives, You will never allow a group's will to usurp your individual rights.
1: In the light of the startling results of experiments like the third wave, the Stanford prison experiment, and the Milgram experiment, it's undeniable that there is a certain propensity in the general public to follow and enact the orders of authority figures, and to themselves partake in sadistic and otherwise morally reprehensible behavior on the part of authority figures and power systems. Of course, in the light of this information, any mindless worship of an Obama-saya is disturbing. Since when in American politics has it ever been important to unquestioningly worship the leader of a political party? And make no mistake, worship it is, as evidenced by the extremely unlikely, flattering press coverage that Obama has received since the day he announced his candidacy despite the fact that he is a one-term U.S. senator with almost no political experience and certainly no identifiable background, which would make anyone confident to believe that he really could take the commander-in-chief position were it anything other than a puppet position, as we've outlined in previous episodes of the Corbett Report. So with all of that history in mind, the most disturbing part of the Obamasiah culture taking shape around us is the recent development of pledging service to Obama.
3: So let us summon a new spirit of patriotism, of responsibility, where each of us resolves to pitch in and work
7: harder and look after not only ourselves, but each other.
6: I pledge. I pledge. I pledge to help end hunger in America.
0: By
4: supporting Feeding America and our local food bank. I pledge
6: I pledge To
0: smile more To laugh more To love more I pledge To volunteer more of my time To help children battling serious illnesses
1: With the art of Elysium
6: I pledge To be a great mother
5: To be a great father
6: To continue working with UNICEF To make this world a better place for all of our children To be the voice for those that have no voice I pledge I pledge
7: To consider myself an American Not an African Always represent my country with pride,
6: dignity, and honesty. I pledge to go to usaservice.org and find a service project that I am passionate about. I pledge allegiance to the funk, to the United Funk of Funkadelica. I pledge to never give anyone the finger when I'm driving again.
0: To always find the humor in everything. I pledge to help find a cure for Alzheimer's,
5: to care for America's elderly, to make sure that senior citizens have access
1: to health care,
0: so that our next generation's memories will not be forgotten. I pledge to bring awareness to mental disease, to advance stem cell research,
3: to spread the awareness of autism. I pledge to show more love to strangers, to meet my neighbors, find
5: out their names.
0: I'm going to give them a smile and ask them how I can be of service to them. I pledge. I pledge to be a better mentor to my younger sisters.
6: To continue to be a mentor for big brothers and big sisters.
0: I pledge to reduce my use of plastic by starting with using less bottled water. To plant 500 trees this year to help our planet. To be more green. To no longer use the
6: plastic bags at the grocery store. To consume less
5: and cultivate more.
0: So that we are on this planet forever.
3: For the
5: environment, I pledge to flush only after a deuce, never a single. I pledge. I
0: pledge. (laughs) I pledge to turn the lights off because I used to leave the lights on, but we want to conserve energy, so I'm going to turn the lights off. You turn the lights off. I pledge.
1: I pledge to sell my obnoxious car and buy a hybrid, to drive slower and not use as much gas.
5: I pledge to volunteer my time to
7: express the importance of arts education in our schools. To sell a culture of intelligence instead of ignorance
5: i pledge
0: to help children understand that just because they come from a small place doesn't mean they can't dream big i pledge to work to make good the 200 year old promise to end slavery
6: to the abolition of 21st century slavery
0: to free one million people from slavery in the next five years to fight
6: to become aware
0: to educate to
6: not give up to defend issues that i care about i pledge to be of service to barack Obama, I pledge to change
7: how I live, to be a better person,
6: to never stop learning and growing each and every day, every day. I pledge to commit to my own change before I ask others to change,
1: to be the change,
6: to be the change, to integrate into my
0: heart what I already know in my head, which is that we're all in this together. Imagine what could happen next. What's your pledge? What's your pledge?
6: I know you got a pledge what's your pledge you got a pledge
0: what's your pledge i pledge to be a servant to our president
6: and all mankind because Because together together we can together together we are and together we will be the
1: change
0: that we seek
1: once again i would suggest that people go to the documentation list for today's episode and take a look at that video to see for themselves how bizarre and creepy the video really is when you see the dazed, zombified celebrities lining up to pledge their service to Obama. It really is disturbing, and some of the things that they say, some of the ideas that they've come up with, which apparently Obama has inspired in them, is bizarre and non sequitur, to say the least. But again, it's part of a wider phenomenon that seems to be taking place at the moment. ...in which we are actually seeing the rise to power of someone who does have a dictatorial control over the public. Now exactly why this is happening is not easy to outline or encapsulate... Many ideas, of course, have been put forward. One of the more interesting ones being the notion that Obama is in fact using NLP, neurolinguistic programming, a type of hypnotic induction in his speeches. And certainly there is something to that idea. So I will put a link to an article about that phenomenon in today's documentation list, which I would suggest that people go and take a look at. Although, of course, I would suggest you take a grain of salt when you read this article because neuro-linguistic programming, although undoubtedly there is some truth to it, and it is a very interesting phenomenon, is also infested, of course, with a certain degree of quackery and charlatans. So once again, please take it with a grain of salt but there is certainly something to it. Certainly there are certain messages that are being encoded in these extremely vapid and meaningless, vague speeches which Obama has given, which outline nothing of the specifics of what he's going to do in his time of office, but fill us with ridiculous notions of hope and change, as if this mantra is in fact going to save us from the very real economic and political crises taking place around the world at the moment. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to be hypnotic suggestion, trans induction, neuro-linguistic programming, or anything of the sort for it to be effective. All that's needed is good speech writing, pushing the right buttons in the right places, delivered by the right man in the right way, for it to have a hypnotic effect on the public, and to, in fact, inculcate a type of mind control in which people are willing to pledge their service to this valiant leader. Of course, all of this sounds very vague in and of itself, so it's best to elucidate this with some clear examples. And a very good example of someone taking apart one of Obama's speeches and seeing some of the embedded messages that are involved in this speech came this week from The Alex Jones Show, in which Alex Jones examined Obama's inaugural speech to take a look at some of the hidden meanings and deeper meanings of what was being said in that speech and also to deconstruct some of the blatant propaganda that was taking place in that speech. Let's take a listen to a part of Alex Jones's examination of Obama's inaugural speech.
3: Now, there are some who question the scale of our
7: ambitions, who suggest that our system cannot tolerate too many big plans, well, there are some that stand in the way of big government and corporate welfare and the bankers running everything. Well, they're the ones that are going to gonna stop what we're doing. They're the ones that caused it all, not the bankers I work for, not the globalists. No, no, even though they fill my administration, the very ones that did all this, admittedly, it's you. You caused it. You're standing in the way of Valhalla. Their memories are short, for they have forgotten what this country has already done, what free men Oh, those of us that don't want big government and secret police and youth brigades and gun control and gun confiscation, we've forgotten what America did. We don't like America. We're not can-do go-getters. Man, boy, shut up. I like Barack. He's getting it done. And women can achieve when imagination is joined to common purpose and necessity to courage. What the cynics fail to understand is that the ground has shifted beneath them. (laughs) Oh, we know. You've engineered a massive crisis. You're stampeding the people through terror. They staged terror, stampede them for police state. Now they shift the police state publicly for what it was built for against the American people. And uh, now they're terrorizing us with what they've done financially. And they're saying, hey, the cynics don't understand. The ground shifted beneath you. We scared the hell out of these people. We're using psych warfare, and they're coming. You will be absorbed. Resistance is futile. That's their message. Well, it isn't futile, and that's why in your internal documents, you say you got 200 days to try to gut this country in the world. And you're going to fail. Political arguments that have consumed us for so long no longer apply. Oh, really? All of our political arguments were right about globalism being bad, NAFTA and GAP being bad, people going into debt and having big government. We were right about all of that. We were on target about all of those major issues the entire time. We were here telling the truth. We've been right. We've predicted what happened accurately. And then he's implying we caused all of this, that because we didn't accept bigger government and more control, that it's our fault. I mean, this is just incredible. Listen to that again. To courage. courage. What the cynics fail to understand is that the ground has shifted beneath them. That's what they always say. Oh, you're just a bush basher because you don't like secret arrests and FEMA camps. And, oh, that's not for you. It's for al-Qaeda. Now it's in the news. It's for us. Oh, you're just an Obama basher racist. You know, we're just cynics, you know. We don't want to have his new attorney general ban all semi-automatic handguns and rifles as he's announced. You know, we're just, we're just cynics, you know. We're just we're just negative. So turn them in. It's friendly. That the stale political arguments that have consumed us for so long, no longer... Stale political arguments. They ignored the will of the people, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, set up this new world order. They're bringing us into the final phase. Newsweek and the Financial Times of London are saying world government run by world bankers where we pay carbon taxes, something people wrote 30 years ago telling you they were going to do because they could read the government documents. And then the very people responsible sit up there like the saviors saying it's our fault they did all of this by design. We're going to come back to this piece of filth liar and finish up with this. Oh, it's unbelievable. Resist these monsters.
1: Clearly there is a type of political leader worship going on here that is very disturbing at its core. Now, the extent to which this Obama worship is in fact an actual grassroots phenomenon, and the extent to which it's a media-manipulated forgery of a real grassroots phenomenon, I will let my listeners decide for themselves. But in any event, if history has shown us anything, it's that if a political leader is being lauded as a type of savior, even before he takes office, before he has done anything or accomplished a single thing in his new role one should be very wary. The idea that people must sacrifice and pledge to the government simply because Obama is a great leader and demands such things from us is, of course, ridiculous and disturbing in equal measures. This type of political movement can end up in nothing better than mass disillusionment and nothing worse than tyranny. Of course, time again will tell what we are heading into with this administration, but all indications are that it's going to be something very scary indeed. Although it seems like a far way to go from the Milgram and Stanford prison experiments to the new Obama phenomenon, I invite my listeners to research for themselves about the national security force that Obama is seeking to create, the various organizations through which people can now pledge their service to the government in the name of Obama, and the formation of Obama Youth Corps, and to reflect on the rise to power of dictators in the past, in order to understand what a population is capable of in the name of their fearless leader. Once again, I suggest you go out there and do the research for yourself, and of course inform others about your research. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, inviting you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report.
4: Machine, electric exercise. Have a seat. Have a seat. The learner gets it shut up. a shot. Wanna step right into your learner? Have a seat. Have a seat. Have a seat. The learner gets a shot. When you press one of the switches all the way down, the learner gets a shot. The learner gets a shot.
3: That is incorrect.
4: This will be at 3.30. The learner gets it shot.
3: That is incorrect. That is incorrect. Total blind obedience. That is incorrect. That is incorrect. That is incorrect. This will be 3.45. The
5: learner gets it shot. In Milgram's experiment, two-thirds of the subjects went all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way.
7: All this we can do, all this we will do, yes we can Bob the Builder, la la la, can we fix it, yes we can.